Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. My interview today is with Adrian Lovett, who is currently the CEO of Development Initiatives, but also is well known for playing a key leadership role in campaigns such as Make Poverty History and the Jubilee 2000 campaign. And it's that campaign that we are focusing on today, the campaign to cancel the debts of developing countries. It was an international coalition in over 40 countries, but it was based in the UK. It started in the UK, and the movement uh, coincided with the celebration of the year 2000 in the Catholic Church, but it was also very strong in the Church of England, and and as Adrian says, in other um, religious organisations, but also charities, NGOs, Lots of celebrities joined in and global leaders. It was it was really a formative campaign for me when I was setting out as a person who was interested in these sorts of issues, development, campaigning, advocacy. And in a way, I see it as some ways a high watermark, as, as I say in the interview. Anyway, here is Adrian and the campaign to cancel the debt of poor countries. Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. I'm Steve Tibbett and I'm here with Adrian Lovett and we're talking about the campaign for the cancellation of debt in developing countries and Jubilee 2000, which was the vehicle for for a lot of that campaigning. Welcome, Adrian. Thanks, Steve. Good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah, just to start with, I mean, I've already said in the introduction a bit about how Jubilee 2000 came into being. But I mean, from your memory, what what was the story? How did it come about? And yeah, what were the sort of precursors to it? It's really hard to to find one one answer to that question because I think you know perhaps this is the case with things that are perceived to be a success that there's a you know success has many parents uh, failures that are sadly orphans and and actually you can trace the threads of Jubilee two thousand and the debt campaign in a number of directions there there was has been for for decades a you know a, a tradition of resistance particularly in Africa and Latin America, to economic conditions imposed from outside, structural adjustments and so on. That was certainly a really important context at the time in the, in the mid-90s when the Jubilee 2000 campaign was starting to come mm-hmm. together. But the specific idea of bringing together the moment, the, the approaching millennium year, with the notion of writing off the unpayable debts of of the world's poorest countries, debts which were being serviced at the cost of of, of human lives and of, uh, of of human progress and future, you know, investment in education and and health and and so on, all the things that you want resources to go into rather than servicing these historic debts. Um, that idea of linking those two things came from a, a number of quarters. There were a couple of couple of guys, couple of uh, British uh, older men, uh, Bill Peters, who was a former diplomat, who had started having ideas about this this linkage. Another very different person, Martin Dent, who was a politics lecturer from Keele University in the north of England, who you know who who never left a meal without food all over his shirt. He was that kind of you know the, the mad professor sort of character. So, so two very different characters arrived at the same idea, making this linkage over a few years. But there was another really important uh, dimension to it, which was uh, represented by somebody called 
Isabel Carter, who was a, a consultant working in international development, but also a a, a very um, committed Christian. And she talked, and she only really talked about this more than a decade after the campaign in, in a very public way. But she talked about how, for her, this was a vision that came to her uh, that came from God. And there was no doubt that whether it was through such a very vivid experience such as she had, and she then became one of the absolutely key founding organizers with Martin and Bill, and they hired a, a director for the campaign called Anne Pettifor, a brilliant woman who uh, who led the campaign. I was her deputy uh, throughout most of the of the campaign. Whether people came with that sort of specific religious sort of almost instruction as they saw it, you know, a mandate, or whether it was just more in the background and they could see that this campaign resonated with their uh, their religious and their ethical and spiritual selves. You know, there were different different experiences of that, but there were people coming from all these different sort of backgrounds. So that all sort of wove together into this this thread of the religious and the secular, the the global south and the global north, the sort of the, the head and the heart, you know, I think all of that just by what I would describe as mainly an extraordinary coincidence came yeah. together over a so, short so period. You had, so you had this sort of religious element, obviously the Jubilee being, mm. being a reference there. The other part, 2000, you had a deadline in, in yeah. a way. Yeah. How, well, when did, how did that take shape and how important do you think it was to have a deadline, some sort of end point? It was hugely important. I mean, I got involved in Late 1997, I'd been working in Parliament for a few years as a researcher to a, a, an MP in London. I'd worked previously in local radio as a radio presenter, so I had sort of not really very relevant qualifications. But I heard a little bit about this this campaign, this this idea of Jubilee 2000. And in the UK, we just had the 1997 election when the new Labour government came to power, and there was a sense of optimism and and, and hope. And and I'd heard about this campaign, and just thought that sounds like a brilliant idea you know, not only the right thing to do, but just a really interesting thing, you know, uh, a good way of resolving a problem, this, this, what seemed to be this endless problem of these unpayable debts. And yes, the fact that there was this right from the start and to the very end, this notion that the year 2000 was the moment to achieve this gave a huge amount of energy uh, and, and sort of in a way sustainability to the campaign over that period, because we were always clear it wasn't just going to go on forever. We were clear with decision makers we were trying to persuade that it wasn't going to, we weren't going to be still around in 2001, 2002 saying how we're getting on. We were very clear that that was the deadline. And we got others, including, you know, everyone from from the Pope to, to rock stars and so on to to call for the same thing. So it was a bit of a sort of, you know, it's a bit circular in a way because nobody had, <laughs> nobody, nobody had, had really said, you know, it need, there wasn't a reason why it needed to be done by 2000. But because that moment was there and because we said it should be done, it became an imperative. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned there, you know, some very famous people and there were a lot of well-known, po- prominent people from politics, but also from show business and other areas that were involved. I mean, I hesitate to say, how did you get them involved? Because that maybe that's a long story, but maybe the better question is, how important do you think they were and what were the upsides and the downsides of working with those sorts of people? I mean, for me, it was an absolutely essential part of the success of the campaign. It wouldn't have achieved what it achieved without that side. That alone, of course, would not have been enough. Let's be clear. You know, without the the policy rigor, without the the extraordinary grassroots mobilization that uh, that that people saw as a as a visible expression of the campaign, it would have been nothing. But 
we were very clear from very early on that we wanted this to resonate with with people who didn't normally think about these things, with people who weren't looking at you know the state of parts of the world and, and thinking about it a lot. And and that was in order to get the attention of the policymakers. It wasn't an end in itself. It was simply because we knew or we believed that if we could create that kind of noise, that public energy, then uh, politicians would be much more likely to take notice. So yeah, it was from very early on a, a, a determined effort. There was a specific piece around around Bono who got involved in the campaign around 1998, I think, and and we talked to him right from the start about not just how he could help us make this famous, but about how he could help persuade policymakers. And he was very attuned to that from from the start. And as everybody's seen and everything he's done since then, that that was his instinct too. Was not just okay, what can I do in a in a rock show on a stage, but who do I need to talk to to help you to persuade the people that need to be persuaded? And that that was from the very beginning that the. the 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 heart of the conversations with people like him, but there was you know there was an extraordinary moment where uh, we we wanted to sort of get the music industry more broadly on on board, and over a series of meetings and conversations, we landed on the idea of doing something at the Brit Awards one year, which was the, you know the UK music industry's big annual moment on primetime television, and we realised that in order to have something to offer to the Brit Awards, to, for them to give us a sort of a, a space, a moment, we had to bring something. So Jamie Drummond, who was a key, key part of the campaign and a great ally and, and campaigner over the years, had not only started to make uh, inroads with Bono, but was also in touch with people who were working with Muhammad Ali. And we thought, right, we can bring these two together. That ought to be an offer that the TV people will think, yeah, that's worth putting on telly for for, for five or six minutes. Uh, and I was there that night, you know, sitting with Muhammad Ali at one table, Bono up on the stage, Bono receiving on behalf of Jubilee 2000 a sort of special award from the music industry, which was, you know, invented for that purpose, uh, just to sort of make sense of it in an awards show. He marched through the the crowd to the table where we were presented it to Muhammad Ali, who received it on behalf of the campaign. And the next day, you know, we took Muhammad Ali through through Brixton and did this, you know, this extraordinary energy around around him and what he represented. You know, and and actually the moment that it really made sense to me was then that evening, because the the TV show went out 24 hours after the after the recording. So that the previous night we'd been there in the room. That following night I was at home sitting on the sofa thinking, they're not going to keep it in. They're not going to keep it in. They'll cut it out. They'll say it's too political. They'll say it's, you know, whatever. And it was in. And it was every moment was there. And I, and that was probably the moment, I think, when I thought, okay, we've got something here. So you've got, you've got partly through this um, high-level like celebrity or prominent people access. You've got access then to decision makers, not just because of that, but also the role of the church and and the campaigning um, force. When you when you got that access, what were the conversations like there? And I'd like to know a little bit about yeah, what, what, did they pour cold water on this idea, or you know, did you get immediate mm. traction? Were people excited? How difficult was that? Were those initial conversations with decision makers? A lot of it was difficult. I mean, it's, it, you know, because the first thing to say on that is that this wasn't, sometimes I think hindsight people look back and say, yeah, this was sort of part of the, the aid campaign. It really wasn't. It was sort of the opposite. It was about justice and it was about correcting a, a historic injustice. And so it was, you know, conceptually and sort of, you know, the framing of it was challenging to many in power, whether in finance ministries in, in the UK and, and other major countries or in the World Bank and the IMF, particularly the IMF, who, who for, for whom this was just anathema. The idea that you, 
you know, that there was ever a circumstance where the the lenders didn't get paid, you know, which of course there is, because you know, it's called bankruptcy. You know, it happens in, in the commercial world all the time and it's a necessary correction. So, you know, we had to win that sort of intellectual argument. Uh, there was a lot of resistance to that. But then there was just the sort of the political obstacles, because as with any campaign, every campaigner knows, you're not just having to win the argument, you're having to capture attention sufficiently for enough time for enough people to get something done. And that sometimes that time is not weeks or months, sometimes it's years, and you've got to sustain that attention, haven't you? Uh, so that was the, the, you know, that's why we wanted the churches. That's why we needed the, you know, the trade unions out on the street. That's why we needed the music industry and so on, because it could help us keep that attention. But I remember, you know, even with the UK government, the UK government was relatively speaking in, in a better place than many on this. This was the era when Gordon Brown was had come in as the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer and undoubtedly had a personal interest and commitment to this. But I can remember, you know, a conversation with a very senior official of his just after Bill Clinton in the US had rather sort of uh, rather grandly announced that the US was going to cancel 100% of the debt. Not ninety-two percent or ninety-four, whatever. You know, you're just going to wipe out one hundred percent of the debt. You remember that moment? Yeah, I, I, I was in the room in Washington when when he made that announcement at a World Bank meeting, and I went back home to London, and I got on the phone to the Treasury in the UK and and to to, to one senior person, and, and and I said, "Look, you've got to do it. You've got to do it." And, and they said to me, "Can't, Adrian. We can't. I've told you, we can't." And I said, "Yeah, but." You can, <laughs> and, and I did. Have, I think I had a sort of actual, you know, a basis for how they could, you know, sort of some numbers and some policy stuff. But really, I was just saying, just do it, just find a way. And the and the answer again, it was, it was the most difficult conversation I had in in the whole time with anyone from the UK because the answer back was no. You don't understand, Adrian. We've given you everything we can. We can't do any more. And about five weeks later, they did it. Right, they followed. They followed suit. They did it in their own way. They announced it in their own way. It wasn't sort of you know seen as a sort of concession to us, but they did it. Do you ever remember any feedback about why they did make that change or why they you know, like changed their mind? I suppose I'm interested in whether was it that they felt pressure or was it that they felt this is an opportunity to be a good government, a good a good uh, you know global player. Um, I think it was both. I think I think they, in the case of the UK government, they saw this as an area of international leadership for them, and the idea that another government, the US in this case, was going to kind of uh, take their place in that leadership role was politically awkward for them. So I think they didn't want to lose that position. So they could see the sort of political calculation was: can we get back in the in the leadership again? But I think it was also, you know, often the people that we would speak to were the political advisors, uh, you know, as much as or perhaps more than the sort of deep policy people. And the political advisors, uh, as you know, and as many campaigners know, you know, they're dealing with a machine that they're working with of, of, of bureaucrats and of technical people and of great, you know, great specialists. There's there's a thousand people saying no in that situation, isn't yes. there? You know, and and sometimes the political people are saying no too because they don't want to embarrass their boss or whatever, you know. But 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 sometimes they're the people that that remind their their uh, the political person they work for. You know, actually, this is why you got into this, isn't it? You know, this is why you get up in the morning. This is why you you know you got elected and you wanted to do some good. And this, I think, you know, when there was the prompt from another government saying, okay, we're going to take a step forward, which looked like a a leapfrog. Um, over the UK, I think the UK was then able to say, "Come on, we've got to push through these no's and move it to a yes." Because you know, really, in the end, is it going to cost us a lot? No. And does it put us back in that leadership position? Yes. And the result for us, from the campaign point of view, was great because, for whatever reason, self-interested or otherwise, 
we had momentum. You know, you you had the dominoes starting to fall, and from there, and we moved on, and you know, eventually the whole of the the G seven aligned behind that position, and in due course, although years later, the World Bank and the IMF as well. We are going to take a stop, short break there, but we'll be back in a moment with Adrian Lovett. Welcome back. We're here with Adrian Lovett. We're talking about cancellation of debt for poor countries and the Jubilee 2000 campaign for that. Adrian, we're talking a bit about the successes of the campaign before the break. But there must have been some bumps in the road. And particularly, you know, were there bumps either within the campaign, different parts of the campaign disagreeing with strategy or whatever, or, yeah, opposition that you found particularly problematic or, or difficult I, I mean, I don't know, for instance, what, you know, what other parties were saying or other commentators or other economists that were sort of pouring cold water idea. There was this um, orthodoxy, obviously, uh, around debt and lending, and we were challenging that orthodoxy in a, in a very, I think, radical way. So there was un, unsurprisingly resistance to that from from those who consider themselves to be sort of sound money people, um, both in whether in government or in the private sector or whatever, or in the media as well, you know, certain news outlets and so on would, would naturally take that stance. We we kind of headed off quite a lot of that because we had we had people on the conservative side, uh, you know, not just in the UK, in the US very much so, who were saying, no, this is sound, this makes sense, this is the right thing to do, as well as, you know, economically sound. So I think that the difficulties, what we come up came up against was mainly just the the politics of the challenge of sustaining momentum over that period of time. It was helpful that we had a limited period of time that we'd set up, said that this has got to be done by the end of 2000. So we had three or four years from the sort of the early peak of the campaign. But even within that, you know, we, we hooked ourselves onto the annual cycle of G7 and G8 meetings, finance ministers and, and, and leaders meetings, because at the time that was where the, the, the action was, we, we felt, and where the power was and certainly where the money was when it came to the debt issue. Uh, and so, you know, we had a couple of extraordinarily big moments around a, a summit, the G8 summit in the in the UK in Birmingham in 1998, which where we had 70,000 people surround the the G8 uh, venue in Birmingham with with a human chain, and that was the first big sort of expression of support for the campaign. But inevitably, the difficulty then is how do you keep that up? How do you maintain that? And you know, the following year, we did something in Cologne at the German G8 summit, and that was good. But it was sort of 25, 20, 30,000 people. The following year, as I recall, you know, we knew that the G8 was going to be in Okinawa in, in Japan, very remote for most people, very, very hard to, to get the presence of people there. So, you know, having sort of, I suppose, set on the strategy of using these annual moments, we were then a little bit vulnerable to the, the, the circumstances of those moments, the leadership from the host G8 country and so on. So we had to try to compensate for that. So that was that was certainly a challenge. But there was lots that didn't work, Steve. I mean, the, 
And I think, you know, we all look, at, look back at campaigns, don't we? And, you know, failed campaigns have successes and successful campaigns have failures. And it's, it's really important that, you know, campaigners give themselves permission to fail. And we certainly did in that campaign plenty of times. I remember a ridiculous stunt that I came up with to burn a laptop on a beach in Okinawa, actually, uh, to capture the world's attention. And we, you know, we decided, yeah, this was the thing because that, that G8 summit, they decided the theme was going to be IT and laptops and stuff. So we said, and, but they hadn't finished the job on debt. So we, 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 they borrowed. We, 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 we took uh, a laptop off one of our interns and gave him a new one and, uh, and burnt it on the beach. We set fire to it and it was an extraordinary spectacle. And we had this sort of line written on the screen saying, this is worth nothing until you cancel the debt. And uh, we had the world's media, the G8 media, there's sort of photographers rushed out down this beach and security was still being kept at bay just long enough for us to get this picture. And I thought that's going to go around the world. Nobody saw it. <laughs> if, if you and I were watching it now, that'd probably double the audience of people that ever seen that. So, you know, you have to try those things and they don't all work, not by any means. I mean, can you pinpoint any particular tactics that you thought, well, this was actually really impactful? What what were they? Did you have a sense of those in advance that, oh, this is going to be huge? I think that the, and again, I, I, I definitely take no credit for this. This was all in place before I was involved, but the, the imagery of chains was an extraordinary asset to the campaign. And obviously, you know, it started from this idea of people in debt being enslaved. It took a resonance. It resonated from, from the anti-slavery campaign ex- explicitly and deliberately. And that chain idea then just, when you gave that to a lot of brilliant um, activists and enthusiastic, often sort of church-going folk, you said, right, do something with chains just set people's imagination on fire, you know, and, 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 and of course that then became the human chain. And that was a feature of the campaign, not only at the big G8 moments, but it was something that people could do in the, in their local park on a Saturday as they were sort of raising names for the, the global petition that we had. It was something that, you know, people could use that chain imagery in all sorts of ways. I think I did joke in a speech at the end of the campaign when we were wrapping it up that I'd seen Far too many vicars in chains for a, for a young man of my age, but uh, but they, they there was also you know as well as the chains I just mentioned there the petition. So we we agreed at the start that we would have a petition. It was started by Martin, the the co-founder at Keele University, where he was a politics lecturer. He got a few thousand signatures in the early nineties there. So we built on that, and we said from early on, well, let's just make it the biggest petition in the world. And someone went and looked up what that was, and it was something in Korea that had twenty one million signatures or something. We thought, okay, that's what we've got to get past. And at this stage, I think we had a million or something. So we had about three years to, to get to that number. And we got to, in the end, I think 24 million, which is still, I think, the largest number of handwritten, hand-signed petition signatories that, that's, that's been ever done. We got to that just in time, just at the yeah. end as the campaigns come to an end. But again, you know, the chains thing and the petition thing just gave activists and the political figures who were watching us and were getting stuff from us it gave them a sense of the the build of the campaign and the and the continuity of the of the message and the imagery image, imagery around it yeah and, and we've, we've touched on the church a couple of times but it, it struck me at the time because i was around the space at, at this sort of time just how good they were at organizing and how how many people they could mobilize and we saw that again in the make poverty history campaign and the trade justice campaign and I think there are still probably well I know there are still make poverty history groups 
in churches around the country. It's probably still Jubilee 2000 groups in different churches around the country. How much, I mean, she say a bit about how important the church was, but also, you know, how you linked up with them, how you not controlled them, but how you <laughs> mobilised them in a way that was helpful and not, not, hin- yeah. not a hindrance. Yeah, I mean, we certainly didn't control them. And that did mean that some of the expressions of the campaign from time to time were <laughs> were visibly not controlled and, you know, not everything quite had the right tone or, or whatever, you know. But the that was the price that we paid for scale and for just empowering people with a, a little toolkit and letting them go with it. But yeah, the church, the church part of it, uh, which was, you know, and we should be specific, I guess, you know, it was predominantly Christian, but actually in the Jewish faith, this concept resonated very much so. This was an Old Testament, not a New Testament concept of, of the of the cancellation of debts. And over time, there were there was terrific engagement and uh, and leadership in the campaign from from Muslim networks as well. But the yeah, it certainly started with the Christian groups. And I think there, as you say, you know, there was it was part inspiration, part organization. And the inspiration was really important. All of the, you know, that certainly drove the 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 moral kind of power of the campaign and it drove people to want to, you know, make a journey to Cologne from some other part of Europe or whatever. But it was the organization that that those church networks brought that was just incredibly important, including, you know, the big, the big um the big Christian agencies like Christian Aid and Tier Fund and World Vision and so on, and CAFOD, the Catholic agency, but um, but also just at the sort of the parish level, the community level, as you said, this this was this was in sermons, you know, regularly on a Sunday in churches. It was it was stuff that people talked about in the coffee room after after the service about oh yeah, what are you doing this week for Jubilee 2000? It was incredible, and I and I that's not a tradition. I doesn't speak to me you know, brought up a Catholic, but that, that was something that I left behind in my teens. And yet I could, you know, I remember speaking on, on a platform in St. Albans Abbey, you know, this extraordinarily grand religious setting, which had sort of 2,000 people in who were there for Jubilee 2000. And you could feel this sort of wave of, of moral energy and, and moral power, which was incredibly humbling to be part of. It does come across as a campaign where there was less dissonance, more sort of unity? And was it in a way the high watermark? I mean, I'm, you know, we've talked about the numbers involved and the numbers of signatories and the high level people. I suppose the modern, you know, the modern equivalent in some ways is climate. You know, that's the, that's where there's a lot of campaigning now, but it's, it's much more diverse and, or depending on your take, controversial, different tactics. There isn't one unified campaign in the way there was with debt. Maybe, maybe it's not possible. Now, to what extent do you see Jubilee 2000 as sort of a high watermark of that kind of model of campaigning? And, you know, are we in a, in a worse position now or a better position? How do you see it? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it was. I mean, you, know, you had a great conversation with Chris Stalker talking about the sort of the, the eras of campaigns, if you like, and the sort of early era of, of, of the suffragettes and anti-slavery and, and, and I guess up to anti-apartheid where the protagonists were largely or often those most affected, those with lived experience, and a more recent era when perhaps we're going back more to that and the bit in between, I guess that's where Jubilee 2000 sat. Having said that, you know, I although I think it, it, it's fair to say that it was a sort of um, a largely representative campaign. I also think that you know when I remember the 
the, the, the way people who were part of the campaign, not paid to be part of it, not, not professionals, but the, the volunteers, the activists, when they talked about the campaign, whether they were British, whether they were Germans, Americans, whatever, they describe it as a sort of a, you know, I'm doing this for poor people somewhere else. They invariably talked about it as I talked about it, which was to say, I'm not having this. My government shouldn't be doing this. This is about me and my relationship with the government that's supposed to represent me, whether I'm British or American or German or French or whatever. And it was a sense of, you know, not of sort of, of, of course, the, the intended impact of the campaign was that there should be a, a positive benefit for humanity in a very real way. But I think the impulse was more direct and it was more about all of us having agency and having the ability to, to engage and influence the people that are supposed to represent us. I'm interested in how you define success. And, you know, you obviously did define success as, I guess, 100% of the cancellation of bilateral dates, something akin mm -hmm. to that. But we also know that then you went on to be director of Drop the Debt. So you had another job to do there. Um, then Jubilee, uh, that, sorry, then Make Poverty History took up the debt issue. And then Jubilee Debt Campaign continues oh, yeah. to this day and still talking about debt a lot. Debt is an issue, perhaps will always be an issue um, of focus and problems, especially for poor countries. I mean, to what extent do we, you know, we had have, we have those successes over time, but, but it keeps coming back, doesn't it? So how do you view that? And, yeah. You know, what lessons does that tell us about how you campaign for an issue like this, which is quite complex? Yeah, I mean, it, you, you know, you're right, and the Jubilee debt folks now are, and others are dealing with a new debt crisis, and that wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> if I'm honest, that that was when we were doing Jubilee 2000, a big part of the pitch, and it was in you know in the core materials that we produced, was that this was a one-off write-off, and that that helped us win the argument for people who said, oh, if you just start cancelling debts, it'll, you know, no one will ever lend again. Turns out that's not the case, and and actually because of that, there is unfortunately the the need, arguably, to 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 write off debt again. Now it's sort of a generation later, so you might say, well, it's a you know, it's not like we we established a pattern that meant every three or four years you had to you had to write off debt. This was twenty five years ago, but it does you know, if I'm honest, it does it gives it has given me over the years sort of pause for thought that. You know what we strive for, and what we very explicitly asked for was you know, linked to the millennium moment that this wouldn't happen again for another thousand years. You know that was that was the notion that that we that we we believed, and the fact that that has not been possible that that actually debt is a problem again. You could say, well, that was a failure of our campaign in not doing a good enough job on the second part, right? The first part was get the debts cancelled. The second part was establish a fair and transparent process for lending in the future. And someone like Anne Pettifor, who led the campaign, was very passionate about that and still is, and rightly so. And maybe we didn't do a good enough job on that part. And that's why we've still got a, a well, once again, we've got a problem, it seems, of unsustainable and irresponsible lending uh, that needs to be addressed. But yeah, I mean, I guess you, you point to the, the long tail, as I sometimes call it, of campaigning. You know, we had those moments in the in the late nineties, which felt like you know we, we we had words in the communiques, we had speeches in parliaments, we had uh, we had those moments where you think, well, they've they've agreed. But that, of course, as we know, is is not enough. I remember actually a a a, a girl, maybe maybe twelve year old girl, who 
on the 16th of May, 1998, which was the day we formed that human chain around the center of Birmingham. Uh, we we just sort of finished it. We were sort of wrapping up. I was putting away a, a microphone lead or something. And this girl came over to me and she, and her mum was sort of behind her looking at me as if to say, I hope you got a good answer for my daughter. And and she came up to me and she said, what did they say? And I said, who, what do you mean? And she said, the leaders, what did they say? And she was looking at me very sternly and intently. And I suddenly realized I had the, I had the, the, the hopes, the dreams of a of a twelve year old girl in my hands, and I thought I don't know what to say because at that stage, you know, we really just got going, but we had, you know, we we we'd got it on the agenda, and I said to her, well, you know, take a look at the newspapers tomorrow morning. This was the nineties, <laughs> and uh, and and you know, you, they, we'll find out then because we don't know yet. They're looking at it now. The, the G eight are inside the building and so on. And she said, okay, and I wanted to you know, punch myself the following morning when the, I remember the Observer newspaper, the front page headline was G8 leaders snub debt protest. And I immediately thought of that girl and I thought, what have I done? <laughs> now, I like to think that she was as smart as she looked and <laughs> she was a patient woman, uh, became a, a, a patient woman and, and, and that she was there seven years later, perhaps, uh, you know, as an older teenager for Make Poverty History, that she's there now, presumably in her 30s um, and advocating for, for climate action on climate change and things that, that we care about. And, uh, you know, but it was a reminder, firstly, that, you know, when you do these campaigns, especially when you try to link the head and the heart, you carry a responsibility to that you that you sort of should carry carefully and also that there is a long tail to these things and it's usually longer than you think and you just gotta you just gotta keep well that sounds like a a good place to to wrap up so thanks so much adrian for your your thoughts and and i think those are really valuable lessons so i appreciate it thanks steve